Our great God, we confess together that at the center of the universe of all reality, there you are. Uncreated, self-existent, eternal, real, true, ultimate reality. And all the way at the edge of your creation on this little planet are we. And we pray that you would help us to know that you have spoken. Help us then to hear it. You have made yourself known. Help us to see it. You have acted. Help us to sense it. Help us to grasp uh, the reality of all the things that you are and help us then to receive it today. Give us grace, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, for the last few weeks, we said that we are looking at the Christmas story and we're considering together the son that is offered to us in this season, right? That's the verse that we've named this series. To us, a son is given. And in particular, we've been looking at that son from the perspective of some of the members of the Holy Family, some of the ones to whom that son was given. And so two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' grandparents from Matthew 1 and this long list of funny names in the genealogy. Last week, we considered Jesus' often forgotten father, his dad, Joseph. And this week, we want to consider perhaps the most well-known of all the members of the Holy Family. We want to consider the mother of Jesus Christ and Mary. And that's the story we heard Andrea read for us in Luke 1, 26 to 38. And when we look at Mary, we learn from her what it looks like to receive Jesus, right? If Jesus is who is offered to the world at Christmas time, she gives us a look into how you receive Jesus, right? That, that's what we want to consider. Jesus is what's offered at Christmas, but here's the question. How do you know if you've truly received him? How do you know if you've really received Jesus Christ? For example, this week I was with my kids and I took them to take a physical. And so when they went to the doctor's office, the doctor does what all doctors do. They told them to open their mouth and say, ah, and then he checked their heartbeat and told them to take in deep breaths. And through all of those, the doctor was checking for what? Vital signs of life, that there's health here, that, that everything is as it should be. These are the signs of life. In the same way, what are the vital signs of spiritual life? How do you know if you have a spiritual pulse? How do you know if you have true life in Christ, if, you're, if you've really received Jesus? And so in this passage, we get through the lens of Mary, three signs, as it were, that there's real spiritual life in you. Three traits, three marks, three characteristics. They're not exhaustive, but at least in this passage, three ways in which you can see if you've truly received Jesus, if you have a spiritual pulse, if there's real spiritual life in you. Here's the first one. If you've truly received Jesus, you know it's by grace and it creates humility. If you've truly received Jesus, you know it's by grace and it therefore creates in you Humility, a sign of spiritual life, a sign that there's a pulse in your soul, is that you have this growing awareness that this is all by grace, and therefore a growing humility. What I want you to hear is a heart that has truly received Jesus can't stay perpetually proud. A perpetually proud heart is incompatible with a heart that's truly received Jesus because if you receive Jesus, there is going to be in you a growing awe and wonder that the Lord God would actually come to someone like you. That's what you see in Mary. So if you look with me at, at the text, you'll see that the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary. The text begins by telling us in the sixth month. 
Now, the six month clues us to there's something that happened six months earlier. And what you see, if you glance upward on the page in Luke 1, is you'll see that this is actually the second time in the chapter that the angel Gabriel comes to visit. The first visitation of Gabriel was six months earlier. So scan upwards and you'll see that six months earlier, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a priest, a man named Zechariah, a man married to one of Mary's relatives, a woman named Elizabeth. And this is an old couple, an infertile couple, a barren couple. They've never had children. And there standing in the temple, Gabriel comes to Zechariah and announces to him that they in their old age, infertile though they may be, bodies that don't work, they will be given a child. Well now, you fast forward six months, and our text says that six months later, the Gabriel the angel is sent from heaven again, this time with another birth announcement, only the second visit feels very different than the first. For example, the first visit is to a priest, to an elderly, respected, believing man who was known by name in his community, who was held in high regard. That's the first visit. The second, the second comes to an unknown young Jewish girl in a town called Nazareth, meaning a girl nobody knew. Just like all the other girls in Nazareth you have no idea about, here was another unknown nobody from Nazareth. And if, if tradition holds, a girl probably in Jewish custom at that time, maybe 13, 14, 15 years old, just a young teenager in Nazareth, a nobody. Or, or you consider, when the first visit comes from the angel Gabriel, he sent of all places on the earth to Israel, and not just Israel, but to Jerusalem, the holy city, and not just to the holy city, he sent to the temple, the holy place, and not just to the temple, but to the holy place within the temple. That's where Gabriel shows up during a public worship service while people are praying to Zechariah the priest in the holy place. But the second visit, the second visit is a private visitation to a home in backwoods Nazareth, a town with a reputation that was bad, sort of like people would say, what good could come out of Nazareth? When you heard about Nazareth, you'd say, what good could come from that place? That's the place. It's a nowhere. And to this nobody from nowhere comes this angel. You hear it? Gabriel's visit is coming to a place. Nazareth would have been the last place that heaven should visit. And Mary should have been the last person that you'd imagine would get a private, personal delegate from heaven. You can almost picture in the text, Gabriel sort of double-checking his GPS to make sure he got the coordinates right. Really to Nazareth? Really to Mary? And then consider, listen to the exchange once the angel actually arrives. Verse 28, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You consider this. In the earlier visitation, in the first one, earlier in the paragraph, when Gabriel, it says in verse 12, saw the angel, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. That makes sense. You're in the holy place. It's dark. You turn around. There's an angel in front of you. You're going to get startled. And seeing the angel, great fear fell upon him, and he was troubled. But here, do you notice the difference? Mary, too, is troubled, in fact, greatly troubled by Gabriel, but it's not in seeing him. It's in hearing him that she's troubled. 
It's not seeing the angel that troubled her. It's hearing what he said. You catch in the verse? And she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Gabriel shows up to Zechariah. He sees the angel. He's startled. It's not seeing him. It's hearing what the angel says that startles Mary. That the angel said from his mouth, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was bewildered by that, greatly troubled by that, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. One preacher said it like this. It's almost like if right now you heard helicopters above, sirens pull into the parking lot, the back door's thrown open, the secret service comes in to your row, to your seat, and calls you by name and says, you need to come with me. Because it's national security, the government needs you, the president needs you, the world's leaders have seen you and are aware of you, you have to come. Your immediate response would be, me? Right? You'd, you'd check left and right to see if they got the right person because you couldn't imagine why you would show up on anybody's radar, much less the world's or the powers that be. And Mary here is bewildered that if heaven's spotlight, searchlight, is scanning the earth and all the world, why should it ever come to Nazareth? And why should it ever come to her? Who is she that an angel from heaven should be sent from God to address her personally, privately, by name, and say to her, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. You have found favor with the Lord. You see, Mary's totally bewildered because she is a nobody from nowhere receiving from heaven a personal private visitation. The angel goes on to tell her, you are favored of God, and then goes on to say, and therefore you've been chosen to bear a son, and not just any son. Look at 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Did you catch that? That the spotlight of heaven found in the middle of nowhere a no one named Mary, a 13, 14, 15-year-old girl from Nazareth. Like the rest of the girls from Nazareth, you should never have heard of her, but the spotlight of heaven chose her. The angel comes to her, calls her by name, says to her, you are greatly favored by the Lord, and then announces you're going to bear a son. And what son? You're going to bear this son that is the son of the Most High. The Lord is going to give this child that you bear the throne of your father David. His kingdom will rule forever. This is the son that she's going to have. The nobody from Nazareth is going to have the son that the whole world has been waiting for. I mean, literally from Adam, from the time that God, the last time, created a man out of nothing, so it is now that he's making a man out of nothing in the womb of Mary, and this child has been waited for from Adam on. This is the awaited Messiah, the promised one, the one that the whole world is waiting for, and Mary, the nobody from Nazareth, is going to be the mother of the greatest child who has ever been born on the planet. So then the natural question would be, okay, why her? If she is going to be the mother of the greatest child to ever be born, the son of the Most High, the son of God, the natural question would be, why her? And I don't know if you've ever thought it through, but I'd imagine at least implicit in your soul would be the thought, well, then she must have had a resume that 
was on top of all the other resumes in the world. I mean, you would imagine that if God was going to choose a woman, then it surely had to be the best woman in Jerusalem, or at least the best woman in Israel, or at least the best woman in the Middle East, or certainly maybe even the best woman in the whole world. She had to have had a resume that was superior to all the other resumes of all the other young women of her day. There must have been something about her. But at least what Luke tells us is here's why Mary was chosen. Mary was chosen because she was the object of God's grace. It's just the favor of God. Greetings, O favored one of God. And the translation there is literally the one with grace. That's the word for favor. The one who is the recipient of God's grace. The text would be pushing towards us. God chose Mary not because Mary was great, but because God is great. Because, not because Mary is full of grace, but because God is full of grace towards Mary. Mary was chosen by the free, special grace of God. One commentator puts it this way, Mary is about to receive freely the special favor of God. She is a picture then of those who receive God's grace on the basis of his kind initiative. See, this is where it feels like our Catholic friends and Protestant brothers and sisters are going to fight because it feels like they love Mary and we hate her. We're anti-Mary. But that's not it at all. In fact, as you'll see, she is for us a model disciple of what it looks like to follow Jesus. She is an exemplar for us of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But here, what I want you to hear is Mary would be the first one to tell you, it was not because my resume was at the top of the list. In fact, Mary would be the first one to tell you it was not because there was anything worthy in me. Mary would be the first one to tell you it wasn't because I was sinless or special. In fact, no one in the Christmas story is more aware of grace and more humbled by it than Mary. Mary would tell you out of her own mouth, he chose me not because I am great, but because he is. Not because I'm sinless, but because he's mighty. In fact, Mary wouldn't just be the first one to tell you. She does tell you. She sings a song about it. Look at verse 48. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Remember last week, Savior implies you need saving. And Mary has no hesitation in calling God her Savior, as in she too needed saving. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And this isn't false modesty. She's not putting herself down because she thinks great of herself. She's genuinely saying, I am a humble servant of the Lord. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary would be the first one to tell you, it's all grace. Jesus came to me. Jesus dwelt inside me because of the grace of God. She wasn't chosen because of her resume. She wasn't chosen because of her worth. She was chosen because of the grace of God. Free, unmerited, undeserved, unworked for grace of God. And she is humbled by it. A vital sign of spiritual life, a sign that you have a spiritual pulse, is that you know it's all of grace and there is growing in you a humility thereof. A sign that you have a spiritual pulse is you totally get what Mary went through. You can totally understand her experience. In fact, a sign is this. 
you get that in some way your experience is even greater than Mary's. You know why? Because what is offered to every Christian, and I mean the lowest Christian, the least Christian, the worst Christian, the one that's just barely going to make it into heaven, the least of us could say to you that what happened to Mary happened to me, that the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowed me, and into this unworthy being came Christ to dwell inside me. This is the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is not just is it an honor to to have Jesus park in your womb for nine months. The greater honor is Jesus to reside in you for an eternity. This is what's offered to every Christian, the lowest Christian, the least Christian, the last Christian has an even greater thing bestowed, which is not just to host Jesus for nine months in your body, but to have Jesus forever in you. This is the hope of the Christian gospel. In fact, the Christian gospel extends to us this promise that the least Christian is united with Christ. Would you think of that? You'd say, I don't have a resume like Mary's. I don't have a resume like, and you could name your hero. You could imagine Jesus visiting them, but you, the lowest, the least, do you know the least of us saints is promised union with Christ? A connection to Christ more intimate than him residing in your womb. But that he would dwell in you. In fact, this is the New Testament language. Christ in us and us in Christ united inseparably with him. In fact, Christian, would you think with me? Do you know how far back your union with Jesus goes? Do you know how far back your union with Jesus Christ stretches? Listen to this one verse from Ephesians 1. Paul is beginning his letter and he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, there's the language, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Did you hear that? He chose us, In him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. That is, in this mystery of mysteries that you cannot fully understand. Before the foundation of the world, God had decided that you were in Christ. Before he hung the stars in the sky. Before he said, let there be light. Before there was anything. While there was nothing. In the eternal purposes of God, in the eternal mind of God, his affection on you who belong to Jesus was set so that before the foundation of the world, you were in Christ. That's how far back your union with Jesus goes. That before the foundation of the world, you were put in him in the mind of God. And then it was God's purposes to do everything to make that union real. So much so that he would send Jesus into the world so that we who have received Jesus by faith are now described as united with him so that everything that happens to Jesus happens to us. We've said it before like the analogy of a plane. If you're in a plane, then whatever happens in the plane or to the plane happens to you. I could call a friend and say, I landed because the plane landed. I could call a friend and say, I took off because the plane took off. When the plane goes, you go. Where it goes, you go. To be in Christ means that whatever has happened to Jesus has now happened to you. Did Jesus live an obedient life? It's like you lived an obedient life. 
Did Jesus die on a cross for sins? It's like you were counted dead towards sins. Was Jesus buried? Then you were buried. Was Jesus raised? Then you were raised. Was he ascended and seated at the throne of God? So you have ascended. And the Bible will literally say, you are right now seated in heavenly places. Because you are so united to Christ. It's a union greater than parking in your womb for nine months. This is what's offered to every Christian. So that every Christian who understands that sees that Mary was just a forerunner to us because every Christian would say, who am I? Who am I that the spotlight of heaven should have shone down on earth and before the foundation of the world, that is, you see, before you had a resume, before you did good or evil, through no work of your own, through no merit of your own, not because you deserved it a little bit better than your unbelieving neighbor, through nothing but the free grace of God, you were chosen before the foundation of the world to be united to Christ. Such is the extraordinary grace of God. So then who would not cry out and sing with Mary? Who am I that the Lord should come to me or abide in me or dwell in this heart of mine? You know how embarrassed we are if some celebrity were to show up unannounced at our home? What is our home to welcome someone of that stature? The Lord Jesus comes to dwell in hearts like ours, in lives like ours, in people like us. So we would sing with Mary, My spirit magnifies the Lord, and my soul rejoices in God my Savior, for he has regarded the humble estate of his servant. A sign that there's a spiritual pulse in your soul is that you know this is by grace. And there is therefore a growing humility in you. You can't stay proud. How can you? The Lord God visited someone like you, someone like me. That's what you see in Mary. Second, a second sign that there's spiritual life, if you've truly received Jesus, is that there will likely be thoughtful questions. At least in the text, another indication, character, mark, trait, that there's real spiritual life. You've got a spiritual pulse, is that there will be likely thoughtful questions. Look with me at just one verse, 34. The angel says what he's going to say in 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Right? You get the flow of the text. The angel says, you're going to have a child. Mary goes, how is that supposed to happen? Remember, we said last week, they're in the betrothal phase. They're legally married, but they haven't yet come together. She knows her basic biology enough to say, explain that to me. How is it that I am going to have a child because I'm not with my husband yet? And so she's got a question. She asked the angel the question. But here's what I want you to catch from that. Faith is often characterized as this sort of blind faith. That Christians are sort of people who don't think, don't ask questions, who, who have to check their minds and their brains and their questions at the door because you're not supposed to ask. You're supposed to just believe. But at least here, would you see, that's not Mary. When Jesus is announced to her, the first thing she has is questions. When Jesus is presented to her, when Jesus is proclaimed to her, the first thing that this very first model disciple for us has are questions. She's got questions. And what makes her question especially interesting is when it's contrasted with a question that came earlier in the passage. You see, Mary's not the first one to ask Gabriel a question in Luke 1. 
This is the second question. There's an earlier question that comes, and that's in the earlier visitation. You remember Gabriel came to Zechariah, the old man, barren, body doesn't work, infertile in the temple. And to this barren man, the angel comes and says, you will have a child. And Zechariah asks a question. He says, how will I know this is going to happen? And do you know what happens? The angel says, for asking that question, you are essentially disciplined. And for the next nine months, Zechariah doesn't talk. He's not allowed to say a word. He has to sign to everybody because for nine months, he is silenced for asking a question. Here, the angel comes and makes another birth announcement and says this incredible news, you will conceive. Mary asks a question. And when she does, she gets an answer. In fact, listen to it, 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Did you catch that? Wait a minute. You go, what's the difference? Zechariah goes, how will this be? And he gets disciplined. Mary goes, how will this be? How, how is it that I'm going to get pregnant? And, and he, she gets this wonderful answer. Don't worry, Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and overshadow you. And then, just in case, let me give you a sign. She didn't ask for a sign. Your sister Elizabeth, she's already pregnant. That's to show you. And then this encouragement. Nothing is impossible with God. Mary asks a question, she gets an explanation, she gets a sign she didn't ask for, and spiritual encouragement. Zechariah asks a question, and he essentially gets put in timeout for nine months, right? Essentially told, you sit there quiet and think about what you asked. Literally, sit there quietly and think about it for nine months, and that's what he does. Quiet as can be for nine months, so what gives? What's the difference? One preacher said it this way, it suggests to us then that there are at least two kinds of questions. And that there is at least two kinds of doubt. Are you allowed to doubt? Yes. Are you allowed to ask questions? Yes. But it suggests that there are different kinds of questions that arise from different kinds of doubt. It suggests to us there's a sort of humble doubt and a proud doubt. There's the kind of doubt that's vulnerable and is open to answers and possibilities and responses beyond its own comprehension. And there's another kind of question that's closed, that knows the answer before it asks it. There's a kind of question that grows out of a stubborn, recalcitrant disbelief that's sure and proud and looks at God and says things like, that can't be true, that scoffs at these things and calls it silly and primitive, that knows before it asks the question what the answer is. And that's closed and no way it's going to happen. And then there's another kind of question, another kind of doubt that grows from a sense of humble wonder that looks up to God and, without fully understanding, asks questions like, how can these things be true? How will it be since I'm a virgin? The kind of question that says, God, I don't understand, but I am willing to learn. I am open to possibilities, open to things beyond my present understanding or comprehension. A pastor named Tim Keller says it this way. He says, in the Bible, then, you've got a very nuanced way to think about doubt. You know, in some circles... Skepticism and cynicism is the end-all, be-all good. Question everything. That's the highest value. Don't believe anything. But one, one theologian once said, the purpose of an open mind is like an open mouth. It's to eventually close on something. You have an open mouth to eventually land somewhere and an open mind for the same. 
But then in other circles, conservative, religious, traditional circles, the, the response is usually don't ask questions. You have a question, you're not allowed to ask. You have to just believe. Mary, don't ask. But here, the Bible seems to have neither in view. It's much more nuanced. It shows us then that there's a kind of doubt that is the sign of a closed mind and the kind of doubt that is the sign of an open mind. And so the question for us is, what kind of questions are you asking? Listen, every Christian has doubt. I can tell you, as your pastor, as someone who has wrestled with and wrestles still with doubt, this has been a timely and providentially good word for me. I can tell your soul, my soul has questions all the time. I was driving with my family yesterday, and I, literally while in the middle of driving, I, I turned to my wife and I, I said, you know, do you ever wonder, is all of this real? Like, I'm speaking all the time in the hiddenness of my heart to God. There really is somebody listening out there? You ever wonder in your soul, like, there really is a God the Father, and really is a God the Son, and really is a God the Holy Spirit, and, and this God really did come, and he really was born, and he really did die, and he really did rise again. He really will come back. He really is going to make everything new. Everything we hope really believes. You ever have these moments where you go, this is all really true? And at least Mary gives my soul permission to go. Not every question implies unbelief. But there's an honest openness to the things of God. An honest, God, I don't understand it. God, these things seem too lofty for me. God, this, this pulpit feels more real sometimes than you do. Your ultimate reality. You're the one from which everything exists, and yet this stuff feels more real at times. So help me. Don't you feel like the man who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? And isn't it good providential news to us that there's room for that in Christianity? In fact, we named the church Seven Mile Road partly because the story of the Seven Mile Road is two skeptics, if you will, doubters with questions, who over the course of seven miles ask Jesus their questions. And Jesus patient with them to walk a journey with them. And over the course of that journey, their eyes are opened. And isn't it good news to the doubting soul that God is willing to take you on that journey? The kind of questions you ask reveal something about your heart. So the question is, what kind of questions are you asking? What kind of doubt do you have? God in his grace comes to Zechariah and to Mary and answers their question through discipline and through answers and gives them evidence of himself. So a sign that you've got real faith, really received Jesus, is thoughtful questions. Third and finally, if you've truly received Jesus, there will ultimately be submission and obedience. If you want to know if you have a spiritual pulse, ask your soul, is there a sense of the grace of God and a growing humility that why on earth did the spotlight of heaven come and find me? Ask your soul, am I asking thoughtful questions open to the possibilities and potential that exist with God? And then ask your soul, is there ultimately submission and obedience? Look at verse 38. This is the verse Mary is perhaps most known for. The angel says what he's going to say, and Mary says in response, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Maybe more than anything else Mary has ever said, this is what she's known for. It's not that Mary understands how it will all happen or all go down. She just finished asking, how will this be? It's not that suddenly she understands it all. It's not even that she's promised everything will work out. 
You see, when she says this sentence, there's a lot of question marks still unanswered. When she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it happen to me according to your word. That is, let what you have said happen. Let it come true. There's all kinds of question marks. Question marks like, it's after she agrees, after she surrenders, after she says, let it all happen to me, that she has to go, okay, now I got to go tell Joseph. And there's no guarantee of what's going to come from that. So now, after having said to the angel, okay, I'm in, let everything you have happened, said happen to me, now she's got to find her fiancé. And she's got to say to him, I'm pregnant. And then when, like we heard last week, when his head is reeling and his body's spinning, when he can't gasp for air, when he feels betrayed, she's going to have to explain, it's the Holy Spirit. And then she's going to have to hear that fiancé of hers say to her, I need to divorce you. And she's got no guarantees of when this is gonna, how this is going to turn out. She's going to be told, I need to divorce you in quiet. She doesn't know an angel is going to come to Joseph and say, don't worry, you can take her. She doesn't know any of it. She doesn't know how people will respond when she explains it's the Holy Spirit and the look she's going to get and what it's going to do to her reputation and what it's going to cost her and what it's going to do to her name. There's going to be no newsletter sent from heaven to Nazareth to explain Mary's a good person. It's not what you think. There's no redeeming of any of it. It's all cost, we said, from the moment they receive Jesus. It's trouble for them from the moment they come to him. It costs them everything. I mean, even if she gets away, there's the law, there's the reputation, there's the potential of stoning. There's all kinds of cost to her. But ultimately, Mary shows us there is no receiving Jesus that doesn't ultimately lead to submission and obedience. Because what Mary says is, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. What's the implication? That means your master, I'm serving. That's how this relationship goes. If you've truly received Jesus, you know he's master, I'm servant. That means he says, I do. That's the way it works, and never the other way around. He says, I do. He tells me, go here, I go there. He tells me, do that, I do that. He tells me, stop doing that, I stop doing that. That's the way this relationship is going to go. He gets to call all the shots. And Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me according to your word. But friends, let me just say this to you and then we'll be done. We have infinitely more reason An infinitely more resource to do what she did because we know what she didn't know. She didn't know that 33 years later, her son would be in a garden and would stare at his own death and look like it was a cup from God. And he would look into that cup and see the wrath and anger of God for all sin. She had no idea that that son would grow up and stare into that cup and beg God, please, take this cup away from me. He had no idea that that son, in order to bring you to union with Jesus, in order to unite you with him from before the foundation of the world and to make it so, would be separated from the Father for you. She had no idea that 33 years later, that son would essentially say in that garden what she said. Not my will, but yours be done. That that son would grow up to say what mom said 33 years earlier. Lord, I'm your servant. Let it happen to me according to your will. And when we see that, we see that Jesus sacrificed for Mary far more infinitely than anything Mary ever sacrificed for Jesus. And then we see that for ourselves too. 
he sacrificed for us far more infinitely than anything we will ever give up for him. And in order to unite us to him, he submitted and surrendered and trusted and obeyed. And to the degree we understand that, we too will respond with surrender and submission and trust and obedience. So I'm going to ask you then today, this passage is going to ask you then today, is there spiritual life in your soul? Do you have a spiritual pulse? I'm not asking you work on your humility, go, go become more thoughtful, go work on your obedience. It's sort of like you don't leave a doctor's office and go, I need to go get a pulse. It's, it's either a sign that you have one or not. And this passage holds a litmus test to you and says, do you have spiritual life? How do you know? Is there a growing humility in you that comes from the unbelievable grace that the spotlight of heaven should come to you and greet you as God does? Greetings, O favored one. Put your name at the end of that. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord has found favor with you. Who are we that that should happen? Is there in you a thoughtfulness, asking honest questions, open to the possibilities of God? And is there in you a submission and obedience that comes in response to his submission and his obedience to unite you to him. Do you have life? Then praise the Lord. Do you not have a pulse? Then today receive life. Come to Jesus that you might live. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that by your spirit you might help us to see and discern whether we have truly received Jesus. If there is no life in us, we pray that today we would sense our deadness, repent of it, and ask you to bring us to life. That we would sense it's the Spirit of God convicting us, stirring us, moving us to come towards Jesus in life, and we'd respond. We pray that you would grow in us a sense of your grace and the humility thereof, we pray that you'd be with us in the midst of our doubt and our questions and you'd sustain us and strengthen our faith. We remember that Luke wrote this gospel so that Theophilus, in reading it, might have certainty of the things in which he believed. And so give to us today certainty of the things that we have received and believed. And help us, O oh Lord, to submit and obey and surrender our life to the one who surrendered his life for us. Come do this and produce in us the tens of thousands of acts of obedience that will come from here as we believe this more fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.